Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Gail. And I'm Catherine. And we're the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. We're delighted to welcome you today. Each week, we showcase vital women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who continue to shatter the myths that we become invisible as we age. The 30-minute conversation with our guest focuses on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. It's with great pleasure that we welcome Cordelia Ryan, age 74, to our studio. Early in her life, Corey was a member of the congregation of Maryknoll Sisters in Maryknoll, New York. In her capacity as a sister, she studied and worked at Mary Knoll and completed her Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature and Philosophy from UIC in Chicago. Several years after leaving Mary Knoll, she earned her Master of Ed in Counseling from Antioch University. When Corey left ESC in 2006, she signed on as Executive Director for CAWC, which is Connections for Abused Women and Their Children, and continued there until her retirement in 2014. As Corey says, she walked away with a smile on her face. Life after retirement has been active to say the least. Corey, we are so glad to meet you and welcome you to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined. Let's start our conversation way back in the 60s. Please. Tell us how you decided on a life of service and what made you decide to leave the convent. Well, thank you very much for having me today. I'm very happy to be here. You're welcome. I um, went to Catholic schools in Oak Park, Illinois, where I grew up. And I remember in about the fourth grade, there was a Marianal sister who came to our school and showed a film about missionary work. And I believe it was down in Latin America. And my memory of it was that there were these sisters in their full habits running through the, a rainforest, being chased by some animal or something. Um, very dramatic. And I guess I was an impressionable young girl. And uh, I just said to myself, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. Um, of course, I was also raised... Um, as a Catholic, as I said. So this idea of service is kind of imbued in you and your education. And um, I don't understand why no one else in the class followed me into that <laughs> uh, mission idea, but uh, it really struck me. And it struck me, I think, in part as I look back on it, because um, I, was I was already interested in the world and travel. My favorite subject was geography, and I really wanted to um, explore the world uh, mm -hmm. when I got older. Mm -hmm. So, um, also, I think perhaps women of our age realized there were not a lot of other opportunities for people who wanted to be a little bit outside the box. I mean, we had our role models in the 50s were our mothers, of course, who very often stayed at home. Um, after World War II, there was the period where uh, women stayed at home, men were back in the workforce. Um, it was the beginning of the a more affluent era in our country, and um, 
if you did go to work, the opportunities usually were social work or teaching. Um, <laughs> it was very rare, even when I was in high school, that uh, any of my fellow classmates would have the idea of being a lawyer or a doctor. It just wasn't what you thought of. So nursing, teaching, social work. Anyway, none of those things exactly appealed to me, but it, what did appeal to me was um, this life as a missioner. And so uh, time went on. You had to be out of high school a year to go into Marinol. So I did go to um, Loyola University for one year, and then I was accepted in Marinol. And then I spent the next eight years as a sister. Um, once I became involved in religious life, there were other parts of it that appealed to me besides just the adventure. And I did um, really begin to enjoy and explore theology and philosophy and um, uh, the contemplative life and the life of prayer. Uh, we did a lot of work in those days in the liturgy. Um, and I happened to have a little background in dance. Um, we introduced a lot of modern dance into the liturgy at Marino. Mm -hmm. and, um, and those were fascinating years because Vatican II was, was happening. Vatican II was a kind of a revolutionary period in the Catholic Church and uh, out of um, Rome, and it transformed religious life. So I entered 1963 um, in the period where we still um, maintained vows of silence throughout the day. Um, we all wore the same long garb and took the veil and everyone was called sister and you have had to have, take a saint's name on not your own and have Mary in your name somewhere. And so there's a lot of uniformity and conformity um, that um, we all kind of fell into. And then Vatican II came along and that's when it was um, begin to be recognized that the way sisters were living was just a reflection of them years when those orders were developed and the, um, our garb was just what medieval women mm -hmm. wore. It really mm -hmm. wasn't anything particular to our spirituality. And so um, began to take off the habit. Um, my group was the first group that were able to go back to our baptismal names. So I gave mm -hmm. up my name of Sister Mary Kellen and became uh, Sister Cordelia. And um, mm -hmm. we were very much uh, encouraged to in our individual interests and to be um, take on roles of leadership even more than we had done in the church. There was a uh, recognition around that time, I think, that the patriarchy that had been running the church had also been um, influencing sisters and kind of keeping them in a certain role in the church, and there was a lot of talk about a revolution around mm -hmm. those, those ideas. Mm -hmm. Anyway, to go back to why I... Um, wanted to do, do service. I guess I was, as I said, sort of young, idealistic. And um, the idea of dedicating myself totally appealed to me. Uh, you had to, because I didn't have a college degree, we had to work part-time, go to school part-time. And by the time um, someone like me was ready to go out to the missions, um, I had already spent several years at Marino. My dream was to go to Tanzania. But I uh, was asked to spend one year in Honolulu for a woman. A sister was coming home on furlough uh, to take over a 7th and 8th grade English class. So I agreed to do that. And um, that year in Honolulu uh, turned out to be my last year in Marinol. I made the decision at that point that um, it just wasn't the life for me. And as I look back on it, I often think that I just outgrew it. You know, it was a childhood dream. It was something I wanted to do. Um, 
for no a long time. wanted to go to Tanzania. <laughs> I ended up going to Tanzania several years later uh, as a tourist, and I was really glad that I had not gone um, in Marinol. It's a, it was a really tough life. Um, but I kept up my, of course, dream of traveling. So also, I think um, I'd gotten kind of political, very political. Um, there was a lot going on with the Vietnam War in Honolulu. We were um, working, mm -hmm. um, doing a lot of protests of the military bases, and the church was very much aligned with the military. So that influenced part of my decision. Yeah. And then just uh, realization, I think, that celibacy is a rather rare vocation, and it probably wasn't the one for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I left with great friends and great memories, and... Uh, all the people I know in Marinol were very tight. Our group uh, communicates frequently, and, mm -hmm. and so you still have contact with people. Yes, yes. Most of most of them left. Most of them left in my group before I did. Oh. Again, that was part of the. Um, it was part of the '60s. Mm -hmm. Really, it mm -hmm. was going on in the church as well as uh, in um, the larger culture. Yeah. And so people were leaving. We, when I went in, there were 126 of us who went in together in the fall of 1963. And three years later, when we made our first vows, there were 36 of us. So you could see the dropout was, it was extreme. And then, of course, as years went on, Marion and all religious communities don't take big groups like that. You have to have an education um, before you go in. And uh, not that very many people are making mm -hmm. that choice now. There's just so many other choices we can make. So when you decided to leave, did you have a plan for what it was you were going to do? Uh, no, I didn't have a plan other than that I had um, by then pretty much fallen in love with New York, having lived there. And I didn't want to go back to the Midwest. Um, I took about two months to travel instead of going back from Honolulu to the States going east. I went around the world going the other way. <laughs> I went to 13 countries. And uh, part oh, of the time you. traveling with um, two Marinel priests who were coming home on furlough from Taiwan. And uh, and other parts of the trip I was staying, particularly in Asia, with Marinel sisters. Who I in fact, I think I was in Japan and Tokyo when my vows expired. So I still had all those friendships and I could rely on them mm -hmm. uh, for places to stay. So I went to New York. Um, and I had this degree in English, so I was very, very fortunate to get a job as a copywriter at Montgomery Ward Catalog. Ooh. <laughs> um, and I remember the interview very well because I was coming back from, or I had these eight years in the convent, and the last year was living in Honolulu, and here I am in New York, and I had to do all these tests in order to prove that I could write about teenage fashion, which was what I was interviewing <laughs> for. And they looked at me like, how could this woman yes. have any, anything about job? fashion at all? <laughs> and I went in the interview, I was holding the New York Times up against my uh, chest, and I had on, um, it was a very hot summer day, I had a white piquet dress on, and I got through the interview. And then when I got out, I looked down and I had imprinted the oh, whole page oh. <laughs> the New York Times on this white piquet dress. <laughs> And I thought, I will never get this job. <laughs> but somehow I did, and I stayed for two years. And, um, and that's when I had the realization after two years. And what's kind of the entry step for advertising, which is could have been my sure. field, I guess, um, that I really wanted to do something, getting back into the service 
world of helping people or service or just being more connected to a community and to people in a different way than a for-profit would allow me to. So what was your your first um, entry then into the, the nonprofit service? Was that working with domestic violence? Um, no, actually. Well, I went at that point, then I went up to um, New Hampshire, to Antioch, and got that a counseling degree. That was the decision I made mm-hmm. um, to do that. And I was able to get a degree. And I came back to New York. And um, gosh, it was just, it was easier in those days to, you know, you talk now, people try to get a job in New mm-hmm. York. It's very hard. But uh, I got a job in a, a multi-service center for kids called The Door. And from there, it was a step um, that we ran out of money for my position but I had made some context and I interviewed at the Diocese of Brooklyn Drug Abuse Prevention Program, mm-hmm. which was a big program that um, in all the Catholic schools in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, which was totally state funded. It wasn't supported by the uh, church at all. And the grants were given to the public schools, to the Archdiocese of New York, which is Bronx, Staten Island, and Manhattan, and then to the Brooklyn Diocese. So I worked with all these people. I eventually became the executive director of that program. And it was, it really provided the mental health services for all these schools in Brooklyn and Queens. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a drug prevention program. But we also, particularly when I became executive, uh, did a lot of work with the treat, drug treatment programs in New York. Mm-hmm. And we lobbied um, because we all had the same source of funding in the state. So I learned about lobbying and funding and uh, and then also just the whole field of substance abuse, um, both the treatment and prevention. The, the years I were there, the latter years, were quite grave in New York because um, we had two things going on that impacted us. We had the crack cocaine epidemic. Mm. Um, so it wasn't so much that our kids in the schools were using crack, but many of their family members mm-hmm. were. And it just you know, made a big change in their family life when someone would get addicted to that and it was happening all the time. And then the other thing that went on um, beginning of the 80s into the mid-80s was uh, uh, the AIDS, HIV AIDS mm-hmm. epidemic. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, people were coming into the drug treatment programs, not only addicted, but very ill as well. So uh, it was a dark time in New York. Yeah. And uh, in 1990, um, by then I was with my partner, John, and uh, he was asked to go to the East Coast, uh, the West Coast, <laughs> to San Diego to work. And so I gave up my job um, of 14 years mm. and went with him to San Diego. Mm. And so what followed from there? How did you, you, you were the director of uh, the YWCA in well, San Diego? yes. Um, that's where I got into um, domestic violence. I was the director of the domestic violence program. It took me a long time to get a job at San Diego. Um, so I really, I got a um, job as a, or I got a real estate license. <laughs> the first year I tried to sell real estate because the salaries were so low in San Diego compared to New York. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I can't take one of these social service jobs. But anyway, I did not do well as a real estate agent, um, particularly because I knew no one. And I, um, so then I, this job opened up at the YW and I took it <clears throat> knowing nothing about domestic violence really other than just as a peripheral um, subject that we knew about um, mm-hmm. and related to families in New York. So I had to do 
learn a lot about it quickly. And San Diego happened to be kind of the epicenter of a lot of changes that were going on in the domestic violence world in terms of domestic violence courts. And uh, I think they were the first community to have batterers treatment program. Mm -hmm. And our, our YW had all these components, legal and counseling and shelter and three-stage housing. And then I was also there when O.J. Simpson murdered his former wife and the trial and all of that. So we were, again, domestic violence came, just became um, an issue that was very much highlighted at that time. And mm -hmm. I've been told that it was too bad that we couldn't keep that spotlight on the topic because it was just such a rare opportunity despite the tragedy that, that uh, created that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how I got into the field of domestic violence. And I realized it's just a very compelling subject for all women, mm -hmm. no matter what your age or what your experience is. You don't have to be um, a victim of domestic violence, I think, as a woman to understand what, that, what that's like. And uh, so I was very happy to have that experience and um, also very grateful that I learned a lot from very powerful women who had had a much uh, more personal experience with the topic than I had. Mm -hmm. In all this work in New York and, and in San Diego, did you, did you work with different economic layers of people? Um, yes, definitely. Um, in New York, uh, if you're familiar with Brooklyn and Queens, they have um, many... Well, they're the largest boroughs, residential boroughs, with uh, numbers of people from all over. But um, from the wealthy to the very you know, newest people who've come into our country who have nothing. So there were a lot of um, ethnic communities. There were a lot of social issues that, that came up for that. Also, in um, San Diego, um, 10 miles from Tijuana, we were... Mm. Uh, had a very large Latino population, um, not so much African American, but um, I think our statistics were comparable to the county of San Diego, which was about forty percent Latino, mm -hmm. as I recall. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there were language issues, immigration issues, um, and interestingly, when I my last job here in Chicago, uh, very similar demographics, only um, people were coming from a different part. And other parts of uh, um, Latin America and South America, but um, the same immigration problems, mm -hmm. language problems. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm just you know looking at your your vita, and you've you've done program development, you've done training, you've done finance, pu public policy, uh, property management. Is, is there any of those that really have been most compelling for you? Um, I would have to say that program management or program development is the thing that's most rewarding when you're in nonprofits. Um, fundraising, if you reach a certain level, fundraising is just part of the job um, for everybody. And, uh, but I don't, and, and I had a lot of experience in that, but I think, doing direct services, even though you're one step removed from it as a manager or director, is the most rewarding. And mm -hmm. trying to stay up to date on the um, both what was the best, um, best practices in whatever mm -hmm. field it was, but also understanding 
that in order to implement best practice, you need to, do, to make sure the staff is well-trained and not imposed from, a t from on top what the staff is supposed to do. So mm -hmm. being sensitive to those kinds of issues. And then, of course, to what, um, what you can get funded. Yeah. And the temptation in nonprofits is to follow the money rather than the mission. Than the mission. And if anybody has worked with boards of directors, sometimes that's a, a big issue because uh, they will want to grow the program based on what money is available. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's always important to remind people that the mission, whether it was um, preventing children from becoming substance abusers or preventing, um, you know, helping women uh, live violence free, whatever the mission was, was the most important thing. And that's what you needed to focus on um, and optimize. Mm -hmm. I was interested in um, how, how you think about careers in nonprofits for people going into a field, because I've, I've read a fair amount about um, people advising that not to just buy the notion that there's no, that there's, you can't, Support yourself mm. by working in nonprofits. That that they're really that it is a a field that needs people and can support mm -hmm. workers. I was wondering what you think about that. That is a challenge. That is a challenge. Uh, if you have um, a real drive to do social services, I think the best thing to do is to be sure you have a solid education because. Education is what's valued in nonprofits. Mm. Um, so I would always encourage people to get as, go as far as they can in school. Um, it is true, there's no denying that entry-level positions in nonprofits usually don't pay very well. And I really, truly admire um, young women who are not so young sometimes. Sometimes they're supporting single mothers, supporting people who go into these fields. Um, but it is a challenge. There's no doubt you could do better financially um, in the corporate sector. Um, having said that, things are changing. There's a recognition, uh, particularly on the part of enlightened boards, that they have to pay better salaries to um, not just the executives, mm -hmm. but to their staff in general. And I had a very compassionate board at my last job at CAWC, and um, we were able to raise significant, make some kind of significant raises for the entry-level people as well as the others. Um, but it's very rewarding. So mm -hmm. I would never discourage mm -hmm. someone based on uh, the financial prospects from going into something they love and they mm -hmm. think they could do a good job with. So you said when you left CAWC, you left with a smile on your face. How, how did you know you were ready to retire? And, and uh, what put that smile on your face? Well, um, I did leave with a smile on my face. Actually, I started smiling the day that I called up <laughs> the chairman of the board and said I'd like to resign in three months. <laughs> retire You're smiling three now. Months. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, I don't think you realize it. Um, I only realized it much later uh, or somewhat later that um, all jobs are stressful, no matter what the job. Even I always liked my jobs. I always said that. I never had a job that was uh, tedious. Um, I always found my jobs interesting, and um, I thought I was happy. I was happy in my jobs, but there's something about waking up and not having to think about all these other things. You know, your meetings <laughs> and your funding and your board and your um, whatever the stressors are in your work—they're all there, uh, 
even if you love your job. So I think that was it. It was just the falling off mm -hmm. of the um, weight of working. Um, so that was a big part of it. The other thing was I had um, managed, speaking of finances at that point, to realize that I was okay financially. I was okay to retire. I was about five months short of age 70. And I was going to get my Social Security to kick in at that time. And I had some other resources, fortunately. Um, and my partner was retiring. So it was just it was just like a light bulb goes off mm -hmm. in your head that this is the right time to retire. That was my experience. Uh -huh. I didn't plan it for a long time ahead. I just sort of knew that was it. And what is retirement life like for you? It's wonderful. <laughs> oh, still smiling. <laughs> I highly recommend it when you get there. Um, so retirement for me is a lot more relaxed than working. I have no commute. I live uh, downtown, downtown Chicago, so I can take advantage um, on foot of a lot of the benefits of living here. We're um, quite close to the lake, and I walk all the time along the lake. Um, enjoy that, find that very comforting. I find it, um, that's where I do my thinking and my uh, nourishing, self-nourishment or whatever. Um, I also am um, a volunteer. I've been a volunteer even when I was working. I became a volunteer, a docent at the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art here. Mm -hmm. So I am engaged in giving tours at the MCA. And that's a great opportunity for uh, learning more about art. The training's very good. The briefings are very good. And when you get to our age, um, I think it's great to have that kind of um, task where you have to um, memorize things and you have to talk mm -hmm. to people and you have to be... Uh, up, you know, keep yourself informed. Mm -hmm. um, it's really good for our aging brains. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then I also volunteer at the Art Institute. I'm over there once yeah. a week uh, in a much less, a, a different kind of a volunteering, but I'm an information volunteer is our title. Uh -huh. um, and we help people find their way around the museum, but also find their way around the art. It's mm -hmm. people from all over the world come mm -hmm. in and we have access to a database so we could look up Art. And you end up talking about art, museums, and travel, and things that mm -hmm. are of interest to me. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy that. Uh, How that. much time do you spend at, at both museums? Um, the um, Art Institute is once a week, five hours a week, mm -hmm. Friday afternoons. The MCA is, I do one or two tours a month, mm -hmm. um, and then I'm there for briefings in addition to that. So mm -hmm. that's really not... A lot, uh, except of course, there's additional studying that goes along with that. And you used to have the travel bug. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Where have you been? Well, um, when I when I had began to get a little bit of money in New York, um, the first trip I did take was to East Africa, and I went to um, Tanzania, Tanzania, Kenya. Also went to Morocco and Egypt mm -hmm. on that trip. Um, took about six weeks. I got some extra time off work. Mm -hmm. So that was one of my first big trips. Um, I haven't been back to Africa since, but I've been able to spend time, um, a lot of time in Western Europe, most countries there, some of Eastern Europe. Um, we were down in Chile and in Colombia. Those are our, the two latest trips to South America. Mm -hmm. um, just recently, uh, I was in... Um, Oh, we were in Asia for the month of December, Southeast mm -hmm. Asia and Singapore for Christmas. 
one thing that happened to me in 1986 was that I met um, John, my partner um, in New York, just happened to meet him in a bar. And he was in town from uh, Portland, Oregon, um, but his on business. Mm -hmm. And uh, about a few months before that, his uh, former wife had moved to England and had and the children had moved with her, his children. So um, they were very young, and we got, John and I got together after that. And uh, one of the blessings of my life, since I never had children myself, was to be kind of a stepmother to these two. Um, but anyway, that also meant that we, went, we began to spend a lot of time in England mm -hmm. and uh, always attached a little bit of a trip to some other country when we could. Um, and since then now, our son Eric has moved first to New Zealand, which we visited, and oh. <laughs> just recently to Singapore, which is why we spent Christmas there and had fun with our grandchildren. So, <laughs> so yes, I travel whenever I can. <laughs> so uh, this is a kind of a personal question. Is John younger than you, your age, or older? John is 75. He's oh, about he's nine months older, older than I am. And I'm glad of that. I have had quite a, a number of friends, good friends, who married older men, who married older men, who were single, as I, um, for a long time, and then married older men. And unfortunately, you know, we, which is something we have to all think about as we get older, but sickness and death uh, have, yes. have made it difficult for to have a, um, a long marriage or a long... Like, so I'm very happy that we're just about the same age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's in good health and I'm in good health. Yes. Well, you look you. like you take care of yourself. Oh. <laughs> what do you do to take care of yourself? Um, well, I, when I was at Antioch, we were talking about Antioch, I met all these people who were vegetarians. So that's, you know, 40 years ago or so. So I haven't had red meat in a long time. And I sometimes think that's uh -huh. it. Long before it was popular to yeah. Or on the food chain mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. So part of it is um, a diet, I guess, although I don't diet. But um, I, I, I'm conscious of, of way that. Of eating. Uh, way of eating. And then um, I, we belong to gym. I just do the elliptical machine three times a week. And otherwise, I really just walk mm -hmm. a lot, mm -hmm. as I said. And living downtown. and uh, Well, I, had, I lived in Manhattan. I lived by the ocean in uh, La Jolla, California and then living here. So I've always been in environments where I could walk a lot. Yes. Um, and I value that. That's great. Do you have a Fitbit? I don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> Should okay. I get one? I, <laughs> do you I have, have one? one. I do love you? it. Yes, <laughs> I do love mine. It, it makes me think about taking those extra steps on days when I don't. You yeah. Know, I'm not in a position to. Mm -hmm. And I live along the lake, and I love to walk uh, as well. Okay, yeah, so you know. Yeah, so I know exactly how you feel. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's special. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering how, if, you, if you think about aging and how you think about it. Um, I do think about it. I don't think about it very well, I would say. <laughs> I think I'm totally in denial about, not about aging so much, but about um, the future, you know, when I won't be able to do all these things that I'm mm -hmm. talking about doing. Um, I went, I had an experience recently where I was <clears throat> looking at my old contact list, you know, how you keep contacts in your phone or mm -hmm. print them out or whatever. I was just shocked at how many people um, have died yes. that I know, and they're contemporaries, mm -hmm. not just older people um, or spouses of my contemporaries or whatever. So it does hit you in the face and you know it's coming. But um, I think 
I have an enormous feeling of gratitude. It's probably what all my friends would say if they have good health. Mm-hmm. Aging has been kind, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. to me and to and to a lot of people I know. A lot of women are our age. Mm-hmm. You too. You know, we're um, older, but um, aging is actually a pretty good stage of life in some ways. So that's not a very <laughs> informed answer, oh, helpful answer. <laughs> I know it's a good answer. Right. It's a very good answer. Yeah. Well, you've had quite an interesting career in life and we just want to thank you very much for being here and talking with us. And I know our listeners are going to enjoy this. They're going to learn from, from what they've heard from you. And so thank you. Well, thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> and listeners, we want to hear from you. Please share your thoughts on Facebook at Women Over 70. Ask questions, add to the conversation. Tell us what topics you'd like to hear more about and become an active participant in our community. Our goal is to create a conversation across the generations. You can access our weekly Wednesday podcast at womenover70.com. And if you know a vital woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us on our website. Thanks to the School of Continuing and Professional Studies at DePaul University for use of their recording space. And see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.